Chapter Sixteen of the Lamplighter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Lamplighter by Maria Susanna Cummins. Chapter Sixteen. The stars are mansions built by nature's hand, and haply there the spirits of the blest dwell, clothed in radiance, their immortal vest. Wordsworth. Two months have passed since Truman Flint's death, and Gertrude has for a week been domesticated in Mr. Graham's family. It was through the newspaper that Emily first heard of the little girl's sudden loss, and, immediately acquainting her father with her wishes and plans concerning the child, she found she had no opposition to fear from him. He reminded her, however, of the inconvenience that would attend Gertrude's coming to them at once, as they were soon to start on a visit to some distant relatives, from which they would not return until it was nearly time to remove to the city for the winter. Emily felt the force of this objection. For although Mrs. Ellis would be at home during their absence, she knew that, even were she willing to undertake the charge of Gertrude, she would be a very unfit person to console her in her time of sorrow and affliction. This thought troubled Emily, who now considered herself the orphan girl's sole protector, and she regretted much that this unusual journey should take place so inopportunely. There was no help for it, however, for Mr. Graham's plans were arranged, and must not be interfered with. Unless she would make Gertrude's coming, at the very outset, unwelcome and disagreeable. She started for town, therefore, the next morning, quite undecided what course to pursue under the circumstances. The day was Sunday, but Emily's errand was one of charity and love, and would not admit of delay. And an hour before the time for morning service, Mrs. Sullivan, who stood at her open window, which looked out upon the street, saw Mr. Graham's carryall stop at the door. She ran to meet Emily, and with the politeness and kindness always observable in her, waited upon her into a neat parlor, guided her to a comfortable seat, placed in her hand a fan, for the weather was excessively warm, and then proceeded to tell how thankful she was to see her, and how sorry she felt that Gertrude was not at home. Emily wonderingly asked where Gertrude was, and learned that she was out walking with Willie. A succession of inquiries followed. And a long and touching story was told by Mrs. Sullivan of Gertrude's agony of grief, the impossibility of comforting her, and the fears the little kind woman had entertained lest the girl would die of sorrow. I couldn't do anything with her myself, said she. There she sat day after day last week on her little cricket by Uncle True's easy chair, with her head on the cushion, and I couldn't get her to move or eat a thing. She didn't appear to hear me when I spoke to her. And if I tried to move her, she didn't struggle, for she was very quiet, but she seemed just like a dead weight in my hands, and I couldn't bear to make her come away into my room, though I knew it would change the scene, and be better for her. If it hadn't been for Willie, I don't know what I should have done. I was getting so worried about the poor child, but he knows how to manage her a great deal better than I do. When he is at home, we get along very well, for he takes her right up in his arms. He's very strong, and she's as light as a feather, you know, and either carries her into some other room or out into the yard, and somehow he contrives to cheer her up wonderfully. He persuades her to eat, and in the evenings, when he comes home from the store, takes long walks with her. Now, last evening they went way over Chelsea Bridge, where it was cool and pleasant, you know, and I suppose he diverted her attention and amused her, for she came home brighter than I've seen her at all, and quite tired. I got her to go to bed in my room, and she slept soundly all night, so that she really looks quite like herself today. 
They've gone out again this morning, and being Sunday, and Willie at home all day, I've no doubt he'll keep her spirits up, if anybody can. Willie shows very good judgment, said Emily, in trying to change the scene for her, and divert her thoughts. I'm thankful she has such kind friends. I promised Mr. Flint she should have a home with me when he was taken away. And not knowing of his death until now, I consider it a great favor to myself, as well as her, that you have taken such excellent care of her. I felt sure you had been all goodness, or it would have given me great regret that I had not heard of True's death before. Oh, Miss Emily, said Mrs. Sullivan, Gertrude is so dear to us, and we have suffered so much in seeing her suffer, that it was a kindness to ourselves to do all we could to comfort her. Why, I think she and Willie could not love each other better if they were own brother and sister. And Willie and Uncle True were great friends. Indeed, we shall all miss him very much. My old father doesn't say much about it, but I can see he's very downhearted. More conversation followed, in the course of which Mrs. Sullivan informed Emily that a cousin of hers, a farmer's wife living in the country, about twenty miles from Boston, had invited them all to come and pass a week or two with her at the farm. And as Willie was now to enjoy his usual summer vacation, they proposed accepting the invitation. She spoke of Gertrude's accompanying them as a matter of course. and enlarged upon the advantage it would be to her to breathe the country air and ramble about the fields and woods after all the fatigue and confinement she had endured. Emily, finding from her inquiries that Gertrude would be a welcome and expected guest, cordially approved of the visit, and also arranged with Mrs. Sullivan that she should remain under her care until Mr. Graham removed to Boston for the winter. She was then obliged to leave without waiting for Gertrude's return. Though she left many a kind message for her, and placed in Mrs. Sullivan's hands a sufficient sum of money to provide for all her wants and expenses. Gertrude went into the country, and abundance of novelty, of country fare, healthful exercise, and heartfelt kindness and sympathy brought the color into her cheek, and calmness and composure, if not happiness, into her heart. Soon after the Sullivans returned from their excursion, the Grahams removed to the city. And, as we have said before, Gertrude had now been with them about a week. Are you still standing at the window, Gertrude? What are you doing, dear? I'm watching to see the lamps lit, Miss Emily. But they will not be lit at all. The moon will rise at eight o'clock and light the streets sufficiently for the rest of the night. I don't mean the street lamps. What do you mean, my child? said Emily, coming towards the window and lightly resting a hand on each of Gertrude's shoulders. I mean the stars, dear Miss Emily. Oh, how I wish you could see them too. Are they very bright? Oh, they are beautiful, and there are so many. The sky is as full as it can be. How well I remember when I used to stand at this very window and look at them as you are doing now. It seems to me as if I saw them this moment. I know so well how they look. I love the stars, all of them, said Gertrude. But my own star, I love the best. Which do you call yours? That splendid one, there, over the church steeple. It shines into my room every night and looks me in the face. Miss Emily. And here Gertrude lowered her voice to a whisper. It seems to me as if that star were lit on purpose for me. I think Uncle True lights it every night. I always feel as if he were smiling up there and saying, See, Gertie, I'm lighting the lamp for you. Dear Uncle True, Miss Emily, do you think he loves me now? 
I do indeed, Gertrude, and I think if you make him an example, and try to live as good and patient a life as he did, that he will really be a lamp to your feet, and as bright a light to your path as if his face were shining down upon you through the star. I was patient and good when I lived with him, at least I almost always was, and I'm good when I'm with you. But I don't like Mrs. Ellis. She tries to plague me, and she makes me cross, and then I get angry, and don't know what I do or say. I did not mean to be impertinent to her today, and I wished I hadn't slammed the door. But how could I help it, Miss Emily, when she told me, right before Mr. Graham, that I tore up the last night's journal, and I know that I did not. It was an old paper that she saw me tying your slippers up in. and I am almost sure that she lit the library fire with that very journal herself. But Mr. Graham will always think I did it. I have no doubt, Gertrude, that you had some reason to feel provoked, and I believe you when you say that you were not the person to blame for the loss of the newspaper. But you must remember, my dear, that there is no merit in being patient and good-tempered when there is nothing to irritate you. I want you to learn to bear even injustice without losing your self-control. You know Mrs. Ellis has been here a number of years. She has had everything her own way, and is not used to young people. She felt, when you came, that it was bringing new care and trouble upon her. And it is not strange that when things go wrong she should sometimes think you in fault. She is a very faithful woman, very kind and attentive to me, and very important to my father. It will make me unhappy if I have any reason to fear that you and she will not live pleasantly together. I do not want to make you unhappy. I do not want to be a trouble to anybody, said Gertrude, with some excitement. I'll go away. I'll go off somewhere, where you will never see me again. Gertrude, said Emily, seriously and sadly, her hands were still upon the young girl's shoulders, and as she spoke she turned her round and brought her face to face with herself. Gertrude, do you wish to leave your blind friend? Do you not love me? So touchingly grieved was the expression of the countenance that met her gaze, that Gertrude's proud, hasty spirit was subdued. She threw her arms around Emily's neck, and exclaimed, No, dear Miss Emily, I would not leave you for all the world. I will do just as you wish. I will never be angry with Mrs. Ellis again, for your sake. Not for my sake, Gertrude, replied Emily. For your own sake, for the sake of duty and of God. A few years ago I should not have expected you to be pleasant and amiable towards any one whom you felt ill-treated you. But now that you know so well what is right, now that you are familiar with the life of that blessed Master, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again, now that you have learned faithfully to fulfill so many important duties, I had hoped that you had learned also to be forbearing under the most trying circumstances. But do not think, Gertrude, because I remind you when you have done wrong, I despair of your becoming one day all I wish to see you. What you are experiencing now being a new trial, you must bring new strength to bear upon it. And I have such confidence in you as to believe that, knowing my wishes, you will try to behave properly to Mrs. Ellis on all occasions. I will, Miss Emily, I will. I'll not answer her back when she's ugly to me, if I have to bite my lips to keep them together. Oh, I do not believe it will be so bad as that, said Emily, smiling. Mrs. Ellis's manner is rather rough, but you will get used to her. Just then a voice was heard in the entry. To see Miss Flint? Really? Well, Miss Flint is in Miss Emily's room. She's going to entertain company, is she? Gertrude colored to her temples, 
for it was Mrs. Ellis's voice, and the tone in which she spoke was very derisive. Emily stepped to the door and opened it. "'Mrs. Ellis! What say, Emily? Is there anyone below?' "'Yes, a young man wants to see Gertrude. It's that young Sullivan, I believe.' "'Willie!' exclaimed Gertrude, starting forward. "'You can go down and see him, Gertrude,' said Emily. "'Come back here when he's gone. "'And, Mrs. Ellis, I wish you would step in and put my room a little in order. "'I think you will find plenty of pieces for your rag-bag about the carpet. "'Miss Randolph always scatters so many when she is engaged with her dressmaking.' "'Mrs. Ellis made her collection, and then, seating herself on a couch at the side of the fireplace, "'with her colored rags in one hand and the white in the other,' commenced speaking of Gertrude. "'What are you going to do with her, Emily?' said she. "'Send her to school?' "'Yes. She will go to Mr. W.'s this winter.' "'Why, isn't that a very expensive school for a child like her?' "'It is expensive, certainly. But I wish her to be with the best teacher I know of, and father makes no objection to the terms. He thinks, as I do, that if we undertake to fit her to instruct others, she must be thoroughly taught herself.' I talked with him about it the first night after we came into town for the season, and he agreed with me that we had better put her out to learn a trade at once, than half-educate, make a fine lady of her, and so unfit her for anything. He was willing I should manage the matter as I pleased, and I resolved to send her to Mr. W.'s. So she will remain with us for the present. I wish to keep her with me as long as I can, not only because I am fond of the child, but she is delicate and sensitive." and now that she is so sad about old Mr. Flint's death, I think we ought to do all we can to make her happy. Don't you, Mrs. Ellis? I always calculate to do my duty, said Mrs. Ellis, rather stiffly. Where is she going to sleep when we get settled? In the little room at the end of the passage. Then where shall I keep the linen press? Can't it stand in the back entry? I should think the space between the windows would accommodate it. I suppose it's got to, said Mrs. Ellis, flouncing out of the room and muttering to herself. Everything turned topsy-turvy for the sake of that little upstart. Mrs. Ellis was vexed on more accounts than one. She had long had her own way in the management of all household matters at Mr. Graham's, and had consequently become rather tyrannical. She was capable, methodical, and neat, accustomed to a small family, and now for many years quite unaccustomed to children. Gertrude was in her eyes an unwarrantable intruder, one who must of necessity be continually in mischief, continually deranging her most cherished plans. Then, too, Gertrude had been reared, as Mrs. Ellis expressed it, among the lower classes. And the housekeeper, who was not in reality very hard-hearted, and quite approved of all public and private charities, had a slight prejudice in favor of high birth. Indeed, though now depressed in her circumstances, she prided herself on being of a good family, and considered it an insult to her dignity to expect that she should feel an interest in providing for the wants of one so inferior to her in point of station. More than all this, she saw in the new inmate a formidable rival to herself in Miss Graham's affections, and Mrs. Ellis could not brook the idea of being second in the regard of Emily who, owing to her peculiar misfortune and to her delicate health, had long been in her especial charge, and for whom she felt as much tenderness as it was in her nature to feel for any one. Owing to all these circumstances, Mrs. Ellis was far from being favorably disposed towards Gertrude, and Gertrude, in her turn, was not yet prepared to love Mrs. Ellis very cordially. 
End of chapter 16